0: Alright, well good evening. Um, it's a pleasure to be here tonight and the text we'll be looking at is in the Gospel of John. Chris preached uh, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 last week and we'll be looking at 3, 4, and 5. So please turn there with me. That's um, John 1, 3, 4, and 5. All right, and I would ask that you'd please stand for the reading of God's Word. All right, John 3, 4, and 5. It reads, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. You may be seated. All right, so I was considering how I wanted to start, and the more and more I I studied this passage, considered what this passage was on, the more and more I realized how insufficient I am at speaking on such a mighty topic. Um, So I thought the best way to begin would be to apologize. Apologize apologize because it's become more and more clear as I've studied it um, and as I've best tried to draw out the truths contained in this passage that I'm not doing them justice. Um, I've found it impossible to try to proclaim the glories of Christ in the finite mind that he's given me. So the question is how can I even begin to communicate the truths that are found here? Um, I've realized I really can't. But um, with that being said, and as limited as my intellect is, I've tried to draw out the truths con- contained in these verses about Christ to the best of my ability. And um, that's truly my desire here tonight. So one of the guys I, I, I read on in this was John Flavel, and he actually had similar words which I was comforted by. He said, Alas, I write his praises but by moonlight light. I cannot praise him so much as by halves. Indeed, no tongue but his own is sufficient to undertake that task. What shall I say of Christ? The excelling glory of that object dazzles all apprehension, swallows up all expression. When we've borrowed metaphors from every creature that hath any excellency or or lovely property in it, till we have stripped the whole creation bare of all its ornaments, and clothed Christ in all that glory when we have worn out our tongues in ascribing praises to him. Alas, we have done nothing when all is said and done. End quote. John Flavel's conclusion um, to undertaking the task of ascribing praise to our Lord and Savior is concluded as being nothing when all is said and done. Nothing, because no matter how high our praise It will always fall short of what Christ deserves. Okay, so now looking at these three verses, one of the first things that stands out is how big a picture that John is painting of Jesus. You can see that his aim is to show the majesty of Christ. But it's not just in these opening verses. As you read through the Gospel of John, you quickly see that the core aim of the entire book from start to finish is to show Christ's majesty. John wants everyone to see how glorious Jesus truly is. A.W. Pink says, The theme of John's gospel is the deity of the Savior. Here is nowhere else in scripture, so fully the Godhead of Christ is presented to our view. Uh, That which is outstanding in this fourth gospel is the divine sonship of the Lord Jesus. In this book we're shown that the one who was heralded by angels to the Bethlehem shepherds who walked this earth for thirty-three years, who was crucified at Calvary, who rose in triumph from the grave, and who forty days later departed from these scenes, was none other than the Lord of Glory himself. End quote. So again, John's aim in this book is to show that it wasn't just any man who hung upon the cross. It was the Lord of glory himself. It was the one who spoke the world into being. And it, was the one, um, and it was the one who created the men who killed him. So in order to even begin to understand the love of God in dying for us, we have to have a proper understanding of who it was who died for us. Paul also knew this. Listen to the words in his prayer that he prays to the Epheser, uh, uh, believers in Ephesus. He says in Ephesians chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in their inner man. So why is it that he's praying that they would be strengthened with power? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you may may be firmly rooted and grounded in love, so that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Listen to that. He wants them to be strengthened in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that they can better comprehend what is the height and depth, and know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge." Knowing the love of Christ, though, isn't something that comes natural to us human beings. It's something that we can only learn through the inspired word of God, and it has to be through the Holy Spirit illuminating it in our hearts. So my desire here tonight is to show you the heights of Christ's love, and then end by looking at the depths of Christ's love, so that we can all have a better understanding of the love of Christ. All right, so verse three, our first verse tonight. All things came into being through him. Let's take a moment to consider the person of the the Trinity that everything was created through. That person is God the Son. When you think about God the Son, what comes into your mind? Is it of him reigning as sovereign over the universe or is it when he was in the form of a man during the 33 years he spent on this planet during his earthly ministry? Both are essential parts um, essential parts of who he is. But sadly, a lot of people's knowledge of him seems to go no further than the aspects of him being a man who lived on this earth. They're ignorant of the fact that if Jesus' glory, if met with face-to-face face in the bodies we live in, It would cause them to vaporize. Jesus is holy, and his glory deserves utmost reverence. Yes, he was in one point in an incarnate state, but remember that he set aside his majestic glory temporarily during his time on this earth. Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being found in the likeness of man. His coming to the earth in the form of a man is equated to him as emptying himself. His incarnate state was a temporary posture that he willingly took in order to fulfill his mission here on earth. But it's certainly not a state that he's permanently in. So I'll say it now if as you think about Jesus, if as you pray to Jesus, if you picture him only as a um, blue-eyed bearded man in a fragile state, or even worse, if you picture him as a baby, that kind of view of Jesus is a distorted view. Um, It might sound unnecessary to bring this kind of thing up, but again, the reality is many people in this country, their view of Jesus goes no further than that. Even my brother Casey, the other day he was working, and a lady... No, (laughs) slow down. (laughs) The other day, Casey was working, a lady comes into his bank and quickly finds out Casey's a Christian, and what does she say to him? She says, Oh, my favorite way to pray to Jesus is imagining him as the baby in the manger. That kind of thing is blasphemous. Thinking of Jesus only as he was in his incarnate state... We have to do more than that. Yes, Jesus did come as a baby. Jesus did have a body that was subjected to all the difficulties that this world has to offer. But he's infinitely more than that. Um, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It says, he lives in unapproachable light. His throne room is filled with the constant praises of the cherubim and seraphim. When Isaiah stood before him in a vision, he fell down as though dead and exclaimed that he was ruined. He couldn't stand to be in the presence of God the Son in his glory. The Israelites made Moses cover up his face because his face was shining after speaking with God. He's the one who formed you in your womb. He's the one who knows the words that are on your tongue before you even speak them. He puts breath in your lungs and he causes your heart to beat. He's the one who causes the sun to rise morning after morning after morning. Jesus is sitting on his throne in the heavens right now, right as we speak, and he's ruler over all. Everything and everyone is subject to him and even if the peoples and the nations hate him of this world, which they do, one day they will bow their, <coughs> will bow their knee to him. Amen. He's so much greater than the greatest thought that we could ever have or the greatest words our mouths could ever speak. He's very God of very God, and he's the one that spoke this world into existence. I'd encourage you to daily ask God in a God to broaden your understanding of His Majesty. It's so important, and He's so deserving of it. All of this barely brushes the surface of who Jesus is, and there's so many routes that we could go from here. But let's go back to focus on who Jesus is displayed through our text tonight. That being Jesus as our Creator. The rest of verse three says, "All things came through. Um, all things came into being through Him." And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. What does this verse clearly show us? It shows us that everything we can know or ever known has come into being through him. All things, meaning all things have come into being through him. The earth, the stars, the planets, the solar systems, mountains, trees, bugs, planets, animals, humans, Thought, reasons, emotion, time, everything that we know has come into being through Christ. It's all part of his creation, which he brought forth in a span of six days. Paul wonderfully sums it up in Romans chapter 11, 36, which says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This world is his. He created it, he sustains it, and he will ultimately get all the glory from it. Another good verse to look at is Isaiah 44, um, chapter 44, verse 24, which says, Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, spreading out the earth all alone. It's so important that we consider these things. Consider that he's the creator of all things, meaning that we are his. Remember, any time you might feel tempted into questioning God, that you aren't God. That this world isn't yours. He's God, and he can do with it according to his choosing. But also remember that he's good, and, all, and, um, and that all things will be done in, according, uh, in order to accomplish His perfect plan. All right, let's consider Job for a second. As calamity surrounded him on all sides and as he was receiving all sorts of bad counsel from his friends, as he was being drawn to doubt God, what was God's reply to him? I'm going to be reading from Job chapter 38, but because of its length, I'm just going to be picking out um, certain verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But here was his response. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you know understanding, who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, or who enclosed the sea with its doors? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the spring of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you carefully considered the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to where the light dwells? And darkness, where is its place? Have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail? Who has cleft a conduit for the flood? Who has begotten the drops of dew? Can you lead forth this constellation in its season, and guide the bear with its satellites? Do you know the statutes of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Can you raise your voice up to the clouds so that the abundance of the waters will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who is given wisdom in the innermost being or understanding in the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the waters jars of the heavens? This was just part of um, verse 38 and this goes on for three more chapters. And then what was um, Job's response that we see in chapter 42? He says, it says, "And, and Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too marvelous for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you make me know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I reject myself. I repent in dust and ashes. After everything that Jesus or the Lord revealed to him, his response was repenting in dust and ashes and acknowledging that God's ways are high above his ways. And that should be our response as well as we consider these things. We should learn not to question God in the ways that he determines to do things or even try to understand the reasoning behind behind why God chooses to do the things he does. Instead, simply trust in him. As I've heard it said, God's wisdom could be compared to all the oceans of the world combined. And any reason that we've been given as human beings is like taking a little cup and scooping up a tad bit of water in the whole ocean. Our comprehension doesn't go any further than that one little cup. So we shouldn't try to understand the whole ocean if we haven't been given the capacity to do so. Simply trust in the one who does have understanding of all things. As we've considered how vast is the wisdom and the knowledge of our creator, it should lead us into a heart of a greater worship toward him. All right, so now I want to spend a couple minutes looking at creation itself. John Piper writes that creation is God's poema, which in the Greek means "work of art. What does he do to make himself evident? He made the world. He created, like a potter or a sculptor or a poet, except he created out of nothing. In Romans 1:20, when it says that God is understood through that um, Um, Through what has been made, the words what have been made stand for one Greek word, the word poema. It's the word we get the word poem. The universe and everything in it is God's work of art. What's the point of this world or this word? The point is that in a poem, there is a manifest design and intention and wisdom and power. The wind might create a letter in the sand, but not a poem. That's the point. God acted, God planned, God designed, God crafted. He created and made, made, and in doing that, Paul says in Romans 1.19, God made himself evident to all mankind. The universe is a poem about God, end quote. In considering this, I wanted to find just the right thing to showcase um, how God's creation is a work of art. What I quickly realized, though, is no matter how big, small, plain, or abstract the different subject I researched were, they all showcase the brilliance of God. So, I have one example tonight. A little egg. <laughs> I, was, I was doing research, and as I was thinking about it, and as I found an article on an egg, I realized that the, it's something that we all have from a day-to-day basis. It's something that probably most of us take Um, for granted, but if you consider the depth of God's creation just in something like this, it's pretty amazing. I found um, some scientific data on the egg, and I dumbed it down a little bit, so I'm just going to read that real quick. It says, Each species of bird produces a unique egg. Size, color, shape, number, those all differ. What is constant is the process of production, the mechanics. A bird's eggshell is tough enough to protect the chick while it's developing, yet soft enough for the chick to break through when the time comes to hatch. Scientists have discovered that a protein binds calcium in the egg's outer two layers to keep them strong enough until the end of incubation. Then the inner layer loses calcium, softening the eggshell and making it easier for the chick to break through. What happens to the calcium? It gets absorbed into the chick's bones and makes them stronger. The egg is like a space capsule, a self-contained world for the developing chick. All the nourishment and water it needs to grow is there when the egg is laid. Um, There's accommodation for waste. There's 10,000 tiny holes in an egg shell which allow oxygen to come in and carbon dioxide wastes to go out. The egg is also coated with something called bloom, which keeps um, dust out of the holes and fights bacteria. As the chick grows, it's strapped safely into the center of the egg by two strong bungee cords attached to the opposite ends of the shell. Um, It is further protected by a dense, shock-absorbing liquid, the white of the egg, filled with protein and a powerful enzyme called lysozyme. This enzyme kills bacteria on contact. A few days before the chick emerges from the egg, a special tool grows on the tip of its beak called the egg tooth. It uses this tool to open a special air sac in the egg, which gives it about six hours of oxygen, which it desperately needs before breaking out. Fueled with the oxygen, the chick is able to use its egg tooth to crack the shell and spring forth into the world. The day before it hatches, it swallows the entire food pack, the yolk, giving him three days of food and water before he gets on his feet and finds nourishment on his own. (laughs) Do you see the wonder in just one thing? That's just one thing, a little egg. Um, Evolution didn't have time to get that one thing right. One egg goes wrong, there's no birds today. It had to be from someone who had a greater mind than just the world out of nothing. That's just one example. Um... I found another statistic. Outside of this, scientists have estimated that there are around, I don't know how they got this number, 8.7 million species of plants and animals in existence on this earth today. However, only 1.2 million species have been identified and described so far, meaning that millions of other organisms remain a complete mystery. Um, 8.7 million species of animals, made um, plants and different organisms, made uniquely by our Lord. Um, that just like a diamond, all display different facets of the beauty showcased, um, showcasing the majesty of our God. If that doesn't amaze you, I, I don't know what will. Um, and it's all been spoken into existence through Jesus. Psalm 33 says, By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. J.C. Ryle says, All of creation is ascribed to him, and none but God can create. Man with all his boasting is unable to bring into existence a single blade of grass. End quote. Let's reserve our praise and our boasting for the one who truly deserves it. All right. All right. So we've looked at Jesus speaking all things into existence. Now let's look at something even more amazing. That being God's shining his light into this dark world, into our dark hearts. It's one thing for God to create out of nothing, but to take a world which is corrupt without hope and to restore it is even greater. And that's what these last two verses focus on. Verses four and five. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. Let's consider again uh, the words of Paul in his prayer to the Ephesians. It was that they would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Up until this point in our text, we've been looking at the height of our Lord, and considering him in his grandeur. But now, as we consider these last two verses about Jesus being the light of men, and how that light shines in the darkness, it's time to shift focus and consider the depths of our Lord. Listen to these words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, before we can ever get a right idea of the love of Christ, we must understand his previous glory and its height of majesty. And his incarnation upon the earth in all its depths of shame. Now who can tell us the majesty of Christ? When he was enthroned in the highest of heavens, he was very God of very God. By him were the heavens made and all the hosts thereof. By his power he hanged the earth upon nothing. His own almighty arm upheld the spheres. The pillars of the heavens rested upon him. The praises of the angels, archangels, cherubim and seraphim perpetually surrounded him. The full chorus of the hallelujahs of the universe unceasingly flowed to the foot of his throne. He reigned supreme above all creatures. God over all, blessed forever. Who can tell us his height then? And yet... This must be attained before we measure the length of that mighty stoop which he took when he came to the earth to redeem our souls. And who, on the other hand, can tell us how low he descended? To be a man was something. To be a man of sorrows, that was far more. To bleed, to suffer, to die. Um, These were much for him who was the son of God. But to suffer as he did, such unparalleled agony... To endure, as, um, as he did, a death of shame and a death of desertion of his God, that is a lower depth of condescending love, which the most inspired mind must utterly fail to fathom. And yet we must first understand infinite height and then infinite depth. We must measure, in fact, the whole infinite that is in between heaven and hell before we can understand the love of Christ. This is why it's so important for us to seek to understand the majesty of Christ because it it helps us better understand the depths in which he descended when he came to this earth. You see, Jesus came to a spiritually dark world. It was a dead world that hated the light. Think of it this way. I'm sure you all know what the orcs in the Lord of the Rings look like. Um, they're some of the most nasty-looking creatures out there. It's only a reflection, though, of what their nature looks like. When you look at them, it's easy to understand why the good guys wanted to wipe them out. And here's the punch in the gut. I believe that if our fallen human nature was reflected in our appearance, then we'd be even uglier than the orcs. That's who Jesus came to this world to redeem. How can we comprehend something so incomprehensible that Jesus, in his high, perfect holiness, showed his love towards us, enemies of him in our detestable state? We were in utter darkness. Everything we turned to in this world was further darkness. Groping around, trying to find something to satisfy the cravings and the lusts of our heart, but never turning to God or even desiring to do so. We were on the conveyor belt headed straight for hell um, without any care of the looming destruction in front of us. Our condition? Hopeless. But then the source of light himself stepped down from his glory on high to reveal to hopeless humanity a way to salvation, a way off the conveyor belt headed toward hell. And what do we do with that great light revealed to us? We hang him on a tree to die. We kill the only light that this world has ever known. If that doesn't show you the darkness of humanity, then I don't know what will. He hung and died on that tree in what seems would have been all glimmer of hope lost. But instead of hope being lost from the greatest act of evil ever committed, hope is restored to mankind. Hope is restored because on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. He bore the sins of every man, woman, and child that will ever believe upon his name, who will turn away from the darkness that they were born into and will turn to him, the light of mankind. If you believe in Jesus right now, know that you have received, one of God, as one of God's elect, the greatest gift that has ever been given. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In everything that we've considered about Jesus tonight, there's wonder in it. But nothing comes close to the wonder of the king of the universe stepping down to save humanity. Yes, or you could spend the remainder of your lives trying to understand the love of Christ in this act and hardly even brush the surface. If you're a believer here tonight, praise him anew for what he's done for you, for illuminating in your hearts the light of the gospel which has the power to save. And if you aren't sure if the light of Christ has been illuminated in your hearts, then I would urge you to cry out to him and ask you to make him new, make you new. Confess your sins and submit to him as Lord over your life. All right. So to conclude, what do we do with these amazing truths about our God? What should be our response to all of this? This is what I'll say. Imagine this life is a barren desert. Everywhere you look, Everywhere you turn, there's miles and miles of sand. Everything is dry and leaves you thirsting for something more. You keep chasing after mirages that seem to promise something to satisfy your soul, but they only leave you more hopeless. But then you hear about the work of Jesus, which is able to save souls, and you find everlasting life in him. You find an oasis for your wearied soul. That's the reality of everyone who's found life in Christ. So now let me ask you this as well. Knowing that this world is nothing but a desert that will leave you empty, do you still try to find life in it? Knowing that Christ is the wellspring of eternal life, are you satisfied in him alone? If you can't honestly say that you're satisfied in him alone, then you need to repent. If you find more joy in your job, your hobbies, your football team, video games, wealth, fame, family, guns, safety, traditions, books, food, traveling, camping, and anything else in this life that can so quickly become an idol, then I'd say for the sake of your everlasting soul, cut it out of that core place in your heart. Everything in this life runs the risk of being elevated above God, but nothing is worth forfeiting your soul over. God gives no room for us to be partial about him. We can't keep one foot in the oasis of our Lord and keep the other in the desert looking for things to satisfy us. It's all or it's nothing. He will spit the lukewarm out of his mouth. If you find yourself in a place tonight being convicted about idols in your heart, then I'd encourage you to immediately fall before your Lord and confess your sin. You'll never be strong enough to overcome idolatry but there's someone who can overcome it for you. Think about everything we've looked at tonight. Jesus sits on his throne as ruler over all. He's spoken and the worlds were created. He upholds everything by the word of his power. Don't you think he's also strong enough to save you, deliver you from idolatry and from sin? Christ came to die on the cross for your sin and he's given you everything you need, including his Holy Spirit to release you from sin's power. Are you relying on your own strength tonight? If you are, I'm here to tell you that you will fail 100% of the time. Fall on Christ. Cling to Christ. Abide in Christ. Don't look anywhere else, but look to Christ. He's the only one who has the power to save, the power to sanctify, and the power to glorify. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much as we consider these truths tonight for the glorious truth revealed through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent him to be the light of the world, to shine his light into this world which loved darkness. Thank you that you in your perfect wisdom chose willingly to have him come to this world and not just to be subjected to all of the hardships of it, the sin of it, but to hang upon that cross and to bear everyone's sin who will ever believe in the name of Jesus. Lord, as I consider these truths tonight, I'm so thankful to consider my own life that I was headed for hell, that I had no hope, that I was utterly hopeless, that all of us were utterly hopeless, but you decided to show favor to us. You decided to pluck us off the conveyor belt headed toward hell and not just to be impartial toward us, but to clothe us in the righteousness of Christ, to call us your own, to call us your children. Thank you, Lord, that even though this world is falling apart, this world is so clearly in opposition to you, this world hates you. This world is filled with sin thank you that our hope doesn't lie in this world, that our hope is in you, that we have the hope of an eternal life spent with you ever, from everlasting to everlasting. I pray that you would bless this new start to our week, Lord, that we would look to you, that we would not rely on our own strength, that we would die to ourselves and to our, and that we would rely completely and wholly upon Christ and Christ alone. And as Brad prayed today, I pray that we would be found in Christ, that we would find our refuge in Him and Him alone. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.